0: This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchil. Having a baby is one of life's greatest joys for people who want children. The months leading up to a healthy birth are marked by small milestones from that first ultrasound picture to hearing the first heartbeat. Then there's the moment you tell your family and friends and of course you say yes to the baby showers they wanna throw you. Who knew you needed all that stuff for one tiny person? Even those awkward labor classes are an important step on this journey but nothing goes exactly as planned. Today where we live, we hit on a topic not often discussed, miscarriages. Coming up, we'll hear from a Connecticut group that helps families who've experienced pregnancy loss. We'll also hear the story of one woman who miscarried and about the discomfort that surrounds the M word. Is this something you or your partner experienced? You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us from NPR in Midtown Manhattan is our guest, Dr. Matt Seidel. He's an OBGYN and Chief Medical Officer of Women's Health Connecticut. Dr. Seidel, welcome to our show.
2: Good morning and delighted to be here.
0: So can you define miscarriage for us? Uh, When exactly does it happen in a pregnancy? And later on, we want to hear more about some of the reasons behind it.
2: So, miscarriage is the loss of a pregnancy that's defined as before twenty weeks of pregnancy, and miscarriage is a word that describes several different conditions, but there are basically several kinds of miscarriage, but it's basically when a pregnancy starts and then stops, and uh, there are many, many reasons for this and so forth, but that's the basic uh, definition
0: and why is it defined up until twenty weeks? What happens after that? after
2: After 20 weeks, uh, a miscarriage is more known in the popular term as stillbirth or in the medical term as intrauterine fetal demise, and it is basically a different set of causes and a different method of management. But before the 20-week mark is when we define it as miscarriage.
0: When we were talking about uh, uh, taking on this topic for the show, uh, we were curious about how common miscarriages are, and there's uh, different statistics that are that have been quoted. I think the Mayo Clinic says about 10 to 20 percent of known pregnancies end in miscarriage. But is this number actually higher, Dr. Sadek?
2: Well, it's very important for people to understand that miscarriage is exactly uh, is is actually very much more common than we think about. You know, we think about pregnancy as this perfect thing, and we remember the pictures from Life magazine of these um, embryos growing and everything being perfect. But actually, the system is a very sort of sloppy system. I always say to patients that Mother Nature uh, is throwing a lot of things up against the wall to see what will stick, and uh, the, the process of fertilization is a very complex process, as we all remember from high school biology, I'm sure. Um, And it is actually designed to make mistakes because if we didn't make mistakes, we'd all be perfect amoebas, is what I always tell patients. So actually, the numbers are actually closer to one out of two pregnancies ends in miscarriage. Most of those we don't know about. They happen so early that we think, oh, perhaps my period was a day late or a little bit heavier. But of the ones we know about... That 20% number, 15 to 20% of known pregnancies, is probably correct.
0: So not always a a reason behind why a miscarriage happens, but what about factors when we think about uh, the person's age or um, their method of of conception?
2: So in fact, when we look at the risk factors for miscarriage, the causes for miscarriage almost 50% of the time are something wrong with the genetic material, something wrong with the chromosomes or the computer program in the chromosomes, if you will. So that almost half the time, it's just that at the time of fertilization, something went wrong and when the and sperm and egg came together and the genetic material combined, and there were mistakes. And the other 50%, we really don't know. We do know that, for example, with advanced maternal age, um, we we do see an increase in the risk of miscarriage, so that as you get closer to let's say forty, it will be up higher till about forty percent of the time of known pregnancies, and at age forty-five, it's closer to eighty percent of the time. So so um, age is certainly a risk factor, but in the peak reproductive years, which let's say uh, under forty, it it is uh, basically A little tiny bit lower in IVF pregnancies are those conceived as, quote, test tube babies because some of those are screened before the embryos are put in. But basically, the biggest risk factors are advancing maternal age and perhaps a little bit more with a history of a previous miscarriage.
0: My guest today is Dr. Matt Seidel, OBGYN and Chief Medical Officer of Women's Health Connecticut, uh, today here on Where We Live as we talk about the M-word, so to speak, uh, miscarriages and how this is not a topic that's often discussed. Dr. Seidel, uh, we hear, uh, especially through the U.S. Census Bureau and uh, Pew has done studies about how women are waiting later and later to have children. Uh, does that uh, then raise, the, like you said, the likelihood that miscarriages can happen more often?
2: Certainly with advanced age, there is an issue, and it obviously is a very difficult choice for women because they have this biological clock ticking, and yet they want to establish their career. And so as not only is it a little bit more uh, common to have a miscarriage when one is older, but still, I want to look at the half, the glass half full here, you know, even in a situation where there is 20 or 30 percent miscarriage rate, most of the time it turns out fine. But also, we have to remember that it's harder to get pregnant as one gets older. And the what's called the fecundity rate, or the pregnancies per cycle, is lower as one gets older. So it takes longer uh, for women to conceive, even when they do so successfully, as they get past age 35 and closer to age 40. And this obviously is a huge dilemma for those women who are uh, trying to plan a career and and pushing their fertility a little bit later.
0: Uh, in your career, um, have you changed uh, how you talk about this with your patients? And is it a conversation that tends to happen uh, when a miscarriage has happened? Or is there enough uh, information given to pregnant women and their partners that, you know, this is this could happen and these are the reasons why you, should not, you shouldn't blame yourself?
2: You know, there is something that we do which is called a preconceptual consult. There and in, in terms of talk, and, and when we talk about that, we talk about the risk of miscarriage and so forth, and that it's a natural part of, of uh, the reproductive cycle. In fact, the interest in how to talk to patients with miscarriage has been going on for a long, long time. And uh, doctors are all different, and everyone has their own way of doing things. But we have a fairly standard way that we do this. And In my perspective, it hasn't changed much over my career in the last 30 to 40 years. But it's really important that women who are having a miscarriage understand a couple of things. And my conversation with them always starts the same way. The first thing we say after I'm sorry, which is, I think, very important, in which I think it's very important to talk to women who've had a miscarriage, saying I'm sorry is one of the most important things that you can do because... It's such an important event in their life. But the next thing we need to tell people is, A, you're not alone, that this is very common, and to quote those common statistics, and B, that there's really nothing that you could do that would cause this. So that the first question most women jump to is, what did I do to cause my own miscarriage? And it's very important to understand that most of these were determined at the time of fertilization. There's nothing you could have done to prevent it or to cause it and to make sure that people understand that it's not something that they did that caused this miscarriage.
0: This is uh, important information for our listeners to hear. But what do you make of uh, you know recent stories in the media? I'm I'm talking specifically about the New York Times. They've done investigations on uh, pregnancy discrimination at, at certain uh, companies. And you know their latest story, uh, looking at uh, the rate of miscarriages for women who worked at a particular uh, factory. Uh, they reported uh, this quote: "There's a slight to modest increase risk of miscarriage for women who do extensive lifting in their jobs," and that's according to guidelines published uh, by the American College of Obstetricians uh, and Gynecologists. Uh, And so I'm just wondering when um, we're hearing that it's not someone's fault, but then you're seeing reports like how that might confuse people uh, when they think about, um, you know, what they should be doing when they're pregnant, Dr. Sado.
2: So we have to look at the extremes of the situation here. I'm certainly very familiar with those stories. And you know, it's a very broad topic. There's a huge amount of discrimination against pregnant women in the workplace and in in corporate America and so forth. And that's a topic for another discussion, and it's a huge topic. But in terms of lifting and so forth, there's been work to look at lifting. There's been work to look at shift work, for example, prolonged shifts, night work, and so forth. And there is a very modest increase in miscarriage rates with lifting of heavy weights in repetitive fashion and so forth. And in fact, the um, new laws in Connecticut reflect that and, and say that pregnant women must be given certain accommodations. But I also, um, there are so many things that went into that serious noxious chemicals, stressful work environment, and so forth. And I think we have to remember that there are such rapid changes in women's bodies that are going on during pregnancy. And I think that the, the sort of concept that pregnant women are exactly the same as they would be when they're not pregnant, they're not worse. They're just different. They'll be the same after they're pregnant. But there are so many stretches, stresses mm-hmm. that are going on and so many physical changes that are going on that sometimes we have to make accommodations to, uh, to uh, help them get through that.
0: I was thinking when I was pregnant, uh, the anecdote that um, how much blood a woman actually has in her body when she's carrying uh, a fetus.
2: So the blood volume is up about 30 percent within the first six weeks, by the way. The blood pressure is much lower. And so that when you stand up suddenly and so forth, you can get dizzy and your blood sugar can vary over a much wider Uh, areas so that those happen almost before you know you're pregnant and so that there's no question that there's increased blood volume and people notice this because uh, their sinuses get blocked up, they have more nosebleeds when it's cold and dry outside and so forth. And these are things that are not intuitive, but they happen very early in the pregnancy.
0: Mm. My guest today, Dr. Matt Seidel, an OBGYN and Chief Medical Officer of Women's Health Connecticut, joining us from a studios of NPR in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, Christine's calling from Glastonbury.
3: Christine, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that um, I've had two previous miscarriages, um, one in 2013 um, where, uh, I actually had to have a DNC done. And then recently this past October, um, we had a miscarriage, which was, a it was called a biochemical pregnancy. So it was really short. We, um, took a pregnancy test, found out we were pregnant, got really excited, went to the doctor and then at the doctor's office, the test was negative And, and, um, we found out that it, it, it just didn't take, it wasn't you know, it's, so um, and um, my husband and I, we, we actually have been seeing a, a therapist together um, to help us with. So we have two two boys and one one actually has ADHD. So we were kind of like seeing a family therapist to kind of help guide us through this whole process. Um, and we had mentioned the miscarriage and, and he asked us if we ever had one before. And we said yes. And he said, and, and what did you do for that? And we were like, well, nothing, you know, we didn't, we never told our parents. Um, and we, it was interesting how we brought up that we needed to mourn those two incidents. Um, so like the one I, my first miscarriage was in 2013. And then, and then this one in October, you said, you really need to mourn this together. Um, you need to do something. And um, it kind of hit us then that it's okay be sad about this. I mean, we kind of looked at it. We were like, okay, so it was a it was a bad egg or it was a bad sperm, and it didn't count, you know. Even though we were excited, and then that excitement was kind of, um, you know, eclipsed.
0: Well, thank you, Christine, for calling in, and we're sorry that um, that you had you and your partner experienced that. Um, our guest, Dr. Matt Sadal, I'm wondering if you could talk about um, you know, because she said that you know no one knew, not even her parents, uh, you know how do people talk about when they find out they're pregnant? And what what do doctors recommend in terms of when you're able to break the news, so to speak?
2: Yeah. And I am also sorry, Christine, to hear your story. It is a very common story. A lot of, up to 5% of people will have two miscarriages in a row. But when we have a early pregnancy, you know, you see a positive pregnancy test. You might have this concept of this little embryo. That's not the way things are. You have a concept of this life you're planning birthday parties college education funding for this uh, what my family is going to be it's a huge deal and in this situation it evaporates almost in a second now we we see uh, when you when you hear this news we see people being very careful about when they tell other people because it's it's hard to talk to other people about this and we forget that You know, you are the patient. You are the person who something bad has happened to. So you shouldn't feel bad about talking to other people about this. You know, we say that this heals, but it heals with a scar. And all those, so that sometimes we all have scars and they change who we are as a person. But we all have different ways of dealing with things. And that whole life plan that you had for this child and for your vision of your family is something that you do need to mourn. And it's normal to go through a mourning process, and it's very good to talk about it with other people. And I know that later in the show, you'll be talking about some of the support options that are out there. But we also just can't say to somebody, you know, oh, at least it was early or don't, um, you know, don't, don't worry. You can have another baby. My point is you can't have this baby, and you will never be able to have this baby, and that's something that requires mourning.
0: Dr. Matt Seidel is an OBGYN and Chief Medical Officer of Women's Health, Connecticut. Uh, He's on Where We Live today as we talk about miscarriages. It's something that uh, many of us aren't comfortable talking about, and as we heard, uh, if you don't know what to say to someone, it might just be best to say, uh, you're sorry. Uh, This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to hear more uh, personal experiences with miscarriage, and later on, more about the support available to women and their partners. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall My guest today is Dr. Matt Seidel, an OBGYN and Chief Medical Officer of Women's Health Connecticut. As we talk about miscarriages, something uh, many couples will experience, but often it's not talked about. Was that your experience? Were you afraid about how people would respond? If you have talked about miscarriages anecdotally, it's not uncommon for others to open up about when they experience pregnancy loss too. That happened to our next guest. Joining us by phone is Dr. Lisa Hanasono, Associate Professor of Communication Studies at Bowling Green State University. Uh, Lisa, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, we, we found you through a TEDx talk that you did at Bowling Green State University. Uh, and you opened up about this very personal experience that happened to you in, in front of an audience. Uh, you telling them that you'd always wanted to be a teacher and you knew you always wanted to be a mother. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us about your journey.
4: Yeah, so I guess my my story related to pregnancy loss starts in 2015. Um, my partner and I found out that I was pregnant, and we were elated. Um, we started planning names, for nur- nursery ideas, um, and just basically dreaming and envisioning our future together as a family of four. I have a 17 year old stepdaughter um, who always wanted a little sibling, and so we wanted to expand to a family of four. Um, and everything seemed to be progressing really nicely. So despite all of the typical symptoms of a first trimester pregnancy, the the morning sickness that doesn't just stay in the morning, um, the, the, the the fatigue and everything else. Um, the the dreams seemed to be coming more real at seven weeks because we went to the doctor and we heard a heartbeat. We got to see our little baby spud squirm and dance on the sonogram. It was amazing. Um, but unfortunately, at 12 weeks I returned for what was supposed to be just a regular checkup and they were not able to find a heartbeat. Um, and I remember I was sent to get some Additional screening. Um, They thought maybe, maybe it was just their particular device. They sent me back to get a sonogram, Um, and within the first couple seconds, the technician, her face fell. She looked at me and she said, "I am so sorry. We've lost." the baby and it was something where I was so shocked I I thought perhaps she just couldn't find the baby Um, and so I told her I remember telling her can you look again maybe you know maybe the baby moved somewhere else in the uterus which is absolutely does not make any sense whatsoever but for me I think it really illustrates the shock um, and and the difficulty processing that type of news
0: Um, we're sorry that that happened to you Uh, when you. you found out more about what happened I believe your clinician your The doctor said it was a missed miscarriage? or Correct. Yeah,
4: and this was something that I was not familiar with at the time. Um, I, uh, like many people, had a very very shallow light um, understanding of miscarriage. I knew that they happened and based on my exposure to media representations, I thought it was something that was dramatic, acute, and quick. So it was something where the body would definitely tell you you're miscarrying, it happens, and then you move forward. Um, But for me, like you said, Lucy, I had something called a missed miscarriage or a silent miscarriage, which is where the baby had failed to thrive um, in in my uterus. I had had a pregnancy loss, but my body had no idea that I had had a miscarriage. So it wasn't until I returned to the doctor, thinking everything was fine that I was um, made aware of what had actually happened,
0: as I mentioned, we have an o b g y n with us on the show, Dr Matt mm-hmm. Seidel. this term missed miscarriage or silent miscarriage. Can you talk a little bit more How common is that?
2: It's very common you know the 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 thing that I always tell patients is that of the first maybe 20 cells of a pregnancy, maybe two or three are going to be the baby, but the other are all going to be the supporting structures, the supporting structures like the placenta and the membranes and the fluid and so forth. And most of our signs and symptoms of pregnancy, including the morning sickness that you had, Lisa, and including the blood tests that we do, including the growth of the uterus, the increase in blood volume, they come from the supporting structures. The more abnormal that a fetus is in terms of its chromosomes, the earlier it will miscarriage, but sometimes they're pretty normal and the body just does not figure this out for a while. And so everything goes on as if you were still pregnant. Uh, You are still pregnant, but you just don't have a growing fetus Mm. there because those cells have to be perfect. And so when the fetal cells are abnormal... They stop growing very, very quickly, but sometimes the supporting structures still continue and the symptoms of pregnancy will continue as well. And this happens probably close to half the time in miscarriages.
0: Lisa, after you got that news, what happened next? What, What were the next steps? Yeah, for me,
4: in terms of the coping aspect of it, I, it was a very, very difficult time. I had decided to uh, being presented two options to miscarry naturally or to have a DNC procedure. Um, uh, my OBGYN recommended me to miscarry more naturally. Um, and so for me, it ended up being about a three to four week period for my body to determine that I had ex- you know, that that I had indeed miscarried and for um for, for that to be complete. So it was a very drawn out period, lots of hormonal shifts, et cetera. And I was just absolutely distraught. Um, something that was really interesting that did happen, though, was I started to talk about what was going on, um, and and it was amazing. And I had friends and family members, coworkers, neighbors, even who suddenly started to disclose that they too had experienced miscarriages, um, pregnancy losses, and 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 some people we'd never even broached the topic before, and yet here they are telling me their most personal story. And to quote Alyssa Bolkman, who also is a, gave a TED Talk a while ago on parental taboos, you know, it was like there's this secret society of women and their partners and their loved ones who are all coping silently and singularly alone um, with this notion of pregnancy loss. And... Mm-hmm. I had that this aha moment where I realized, you know, we need to talk about this in order to get the support that we need. You know, we need to open up and shatter the stigma and the silence around miscarriage.
0: Mm-hmm. Lisa, you talked about, uh, you know, choosing the option to miscarry naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, after going through that, uh, do you think that that would have been the option you would <laughs> you had gone with? That
4: is a great question. You know, for for me... I'm not sure if I would have done it that way in retrospect, but I think that each person, you know, given their medical situation and and the complexities of their situation, I certainly wouldn't, you know, make recommendations for other people. For me, looking back on it, I'm not sure. I'm, I might have opted for the DNC, um, but 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 it was nice to at least have options at that point.
0: Uh, Dr. Matt Seidel, we've heard that term DNC a few times now. Could you uh, briefly describe that?
2: Yes, there are. Um actually several ways to manage miscarriage. Three main ones. One is expectant, as Lisa went through. The second is the one that was traditionally done. DNC stands for dilation and curatage or dilation and suction. And that's when we go in surgically to the uterus, usually under local anesthesia, sometimes with general anesthesia, it can be done in the office or in the hospital or in an outpatient surgical center and actually evacuate the pregnancy right there. And the third is medical management, in which we use certain medications to help the uterus contract and to expel the pregnancy. So although all three of them are successful and all three of them have about the same outcomes, the latter two that I mentioned will avoid that four-week period of waiting and uncertainty. And for some people, that may be the right thing, but most people want to get on with their uh lives and as we talked about everyone's different in terms of how long they want to wait but as we talked about older women experiencing a greater risk for miscarriage the clock is ticking so you don't want to wait too long if your goal is to have a family you want to take the time to mourn and that's a separate issue but there really is no reason to wait after a miscarriage and trying to get pregnant again if you feel that your biological clock is ticking, which it is, you know, in many of these situations.
0: We got a tweet from a listener who writes, it's not just the loss of all the promise of a new baby or the guilt that your body didn't do its job, but people also forget the pregnancy hormones linger after the loss in the same way as a woman who carries to term. The experience doesn't end with the pregnancy. Can you talk more about that, Dr. Seidel?
2: Well, in fact, you know, the the pregnancy hormones don't last for too terribly long, but the emotional healing that has to occur from a miscarriage can be a long time. There are people who say, I want to go back to work right away after my after my miscarriage because they may want want to distract themselves from that grieving process. And for some people, that's the right answer. But we always say from a physical standpoint, you're going to be able to feel pretty good in the next couple of days. For example, morning sickness will decrease almost immediately in 24 hours after a miscarriage. But the emotional healing, the grieving process may take a long time. It may take weeks. It may take months. And in fact, if it's looking like it's taking more than a month or two, uh, that's the time that one really needs to seek professional uh, assistance.
0: Today here on Where We Live, we're talking about miscarriages. It's uh, more common than you may think. Uh, with us from NPR Midtown in Manhattan is Dr. Matt Seidel, OBGYN and Chief Medical Officer of Women's Health Connecticut, and also uh, Dr. Lisa Hanasono who is Associate Professor of Communication Studies at Bowling Green State University. Uh, she gave a TEDx talk uh, in the last few years about um, her experience having a miscarriage. Uh, Lisa is calling from Southington. Lisa, go ahead.
1: Hi there. Um, I just wanted to bring up the idea of recurrent miscarriage. I'm one of the small percentage of women who have had multiple miscarriages and never been able to sustain um, a pregnancy. Um, And so there's a population of us out there um, who... um, at least when I was going through this in the 90s, there was very little support, either emotionally or even treatment options. Um, We were encouraged to continue to get pregnant. I actually went through two years of infertility uh, treatment protocol, thinking that might help, Um, and it didn't. And I finally got to a point where my... Uh, specialist said, you know, rather than going forward and spending more money, you should probably be thinking about adoption. Mm -hmm. He said, I could give you, you know, I can help create an embryo for IVF, but he says I can't predict whether or not you'll maintain the pregnancy. So that's what we did. We chose to adopt both of our kids as babies who are now teenagers, but I just wanted to bring up the idea that for some of us, we never go on um, to have that successful pregnancy, Mm -hmm. even though we try. Um, and so there's supports needed for those women as well. One of the things that I found tremendously difficult when I was going through this is my sister and sister in laws and friends were all having babies. Mm. Um, and so not only are you grieving, um, what you can't do and what you've lost, but it also feels like life stands still, that, you, that you're losing your sense of future.
0: Um, well, thank, well. thank you for bringing up that very important point and that's something that our guest, Alina, Lisa Hanasono, had also brought up because you said this, uh, this uh, secret society of individuals that you discovered mm-hmm. that have all also experienced miscarriages. Uh, you know, not, it's not always a happy ending where you can try again and you're able to have a child
4: yeah and and so lisa i I am so sorry for your losses and and I really appreciate you sharing your story with us and and I think that your point is is really important and will take in. um We often want to have closure in our culture in our society we want to say, okay, we can move on and have this particular this particular ending um we want a particular narrative, a woman gets pregnant, and eventually she'll have biological children and when in reality that's not necessarily the case um, and, and that, that is okay. Um, and so I think that we need to recognize that pregnancy loss is experienced differently by each person, um, and, and the way that our journey goes on doesn't always inevitably end in childbirth, um, and that there are different options, there's different ways that our journeys will take us, um, and I appreciate that you um, are willing to share yours. Um, I also think that you bring up a really good point about the need for more support, um, more, more resources, and, and more organizations.
0: We're going to be talking more about the support available to Connecticut families in just a little bit here on where we live. Uh, Crystal's climb from New Haven. Crystal, go ahead.
5: Oh, yeah. Hi. Um I had a couple of miscarriages. Um and uh the first it was interesting to hear about the um the morning discussion. The first one I just kind of ignored and I got the DNC mainly because I had to go to A friend's wedding and I didn't want to mess that up and so I pushed it aside and then I got pregnant again and the second time I was carrying twins and the pregnancy went well and then about five months in I started to bleed and I was just terrified that was having another miscarriage and I went to see the doctor and they told me that I was losing one of Uh, the fetuses but not both that the other one was fine and I just remember being so relieved but it was also difficult that that it was really the second time when I engaged in mourning that because I'd had this little fantasy going about um, having one each a boy and a girl and what I would name them and all this stuff Um, and then I had to sort of uh, rethink that and Come to terms with uh having one and i did carry that one to term and she's now 17. so i just wanted to share that and also maybe get some comments on how common it is to um that my doctor at the time said that it it was not uncommon for people to lose one of two and that back in the day um before we did all these sonograms and everything um women would sometimes be carrying twins and they would lose one and you'd never know
0: that's a good question. Uh, Dr. Matt Seidel, who's with us, an OBGYN and chief medical officer of Women's Health Connecticut. How common is this?
2: Well, if you remember um, in in uh, that we talked about the pregnancy loss rate, the miscarriage rate being about 50 percent, and in twins, it can be the same thing. So in other words, you have, especially in fraternal twins, when you have two separate pregnancies, there's a the same chance that one of those twins could be lost. We call it a disappearing twin and so forth. And usually nowadays, because of early sonograms, we find out very early, but it is actually a very common, twins are much more common than we see at birth. Twins are much more common now than they were before because of all the assisted reproductive technologies. But we do see this rather frequently, but it does bring up the topic of uh, that some people do lose pregnancies later for many different reasons. And there certainly are other medical reasons for recurrent miscarriage. And sometimes, as your caller said, it doesn't always end with a biological mm-hmm. birth.
0: I wanted to go back to my other guest, uh, Dr. Lisa Hanasono, who's calling us today from uh, Bowling Green State University, where she's an associate professor. Uh, she uh, miscarried, uh, and she has uh, spoken out publicly about uh, that experience that she and her partner uh, went through. Uh, Lisa, as you talked with other um, individuals who, who came forward to, to talk about what this, when this happened and, and how they got through it, uh, what did you hear from them in the sense of how we should be talking about miscarriage? Carriage and, and ways it's it's portrayed.
4: Yeah, you know, I think that there is such a, a, a stigma around miscarriage, which is, which is particularly unfortunate because it makes people less likely to want to talk about it. Um, in addition to talking with women in my own personal circle, I've had been fortunate to do some research this semester um, on a fellowship, and I've interviewed over 40 women who have experienced one or more miscarriages. And I've come to, to, to kind of find several themes in terms of some of the challenges, um, and, and, and perhaps some recommendations from that. Um, two particular challenges that many women face in terms of trying to talk about miscarriage and, and breaking the silence, um, and one which I think Dr. Matt Sadell talked about earlier in the show, is is this issue of trying to make sense of it, um, these attributions. So when a woman experiences miscarriage, um, she often says, why? You know, why me? Why now? Why did this happen? And, and as Dr. Seidel mentioned, many times it's a chromosomal abnormality, or it's something that's just beyond the realm of the woman's control. Sometimes we we can't; it's inexplicable. Um, and on the one hand, I think it can be comforting because the person doesn't feel like it's their fault. But at the other hand, it, it raises this uncertainty. If, if I couldn't prevent it from happening, how can I prevent it from happening in the future if I were to get pregnant again? Um, and so, so there's this uncertainty and people don't want to talk about it because they don't know why things happen. Um, but on the other hand, when people do come up with particular explanations, whether they're true or not, um, oftentimes it ends up being self-blaming. It ends up leading to guilt and shame, which further stigmatizes and further silences the person and their story. So they might think, oh, I shouldn't have waited so long to to try to get pregnant, um, or I shouldn't have done X, Y, or Z. And, and people start to blame themselves, and so they, they, they don't want to talk about their story um, because they don't want to be seen as, as the, the, the perpetrator in, in that narrative. Um, so, so it leads to this, this unfortunate silencing. Um, I think the other thing that was really tricky with this was the parent So we know that when people want to cope, um, it can be really helpful to talk about it with others. But one of the challenges is currently a lot of people lack the words. So friends and family just don't know what to say. Um, We don't talk about miscarriage very much in the first place. So when a loved one comes and discloses that I've had a pregnancy loss, they often don't know what to say, what the words, how to comfort. Um, And sometimes people will say things with great intentions, But they are incredibly hurtful. Um, So numerous women have said things like um, they get the at least, you know, so the uh, at least at least you can get pregnant. And and although, you know, there is and there is some hope in that, um, that that is not enough for most of these women. And so it's not particularly helpful. Um, or the shoulda, coulda, wouldas, where people say, well, maybe you shouldn't have had that cup of coffee, um, when in reality that probably was not related whatsoever to the pregnancy loss um, and suggest blame on the woman furthermore. Um, and so we, we, we hear, you know, messages that might be well-intended um, to help the woman, but they certainly aren't. Um, rather, what might be helpful instead is, is, as Dr. Seidel said, is to acknowledge the loss, you know, saying, I am so sorry for your loss and really meaning it. And providing a space for that person to process their grief Um, you know um, what you know what can I do to help I'm here to listen saying that you're not alone Um, and and also checking in with the person beyond just that initial disclosure moment so you know it's it's not just one conversation but it can be an ongoing ongoing effort of support Mm -hmm. Um, so I think one of the things that we need to do is for those who are brave is to share our stories so that we remove this silence so we can talk about it. And it's not such a stigmatizing thing. Um, It can help to educate people to know that this happens. Mm -hmm. And for those who are given the opportunity to provide support, I think part of it is thinking through before it happens, you know, what could I say? What should I say? What might I say that could be more helpful rather than well-intentioned
3: but hurtful?
0: Uh, the topic of miscarriages has been in the news recently uh, with uh, former First Lady Michelle Obama and her memoir, Becoming. Uh, she actually uh, talked about this in her book. She also talked about this with NPR, and we can uh, tweet out a link uh, to uh, her reading uh, that portion of the book. But, but she did say that it helped her, just as you, Lisa, when you started talking about it, you found this uh, group of people that have also experienced it, um, and that was a way to provide uh, support for her uh, during that time. Uh, I am, Before we run out of time, Lisa, I did want to ask you, you know, you, you have uh, lots of suggestions for uh, the general public, but in terms of the medical community, are there ways that uh, the medical community, doctors and nurses, uh, can uh, do a better job talking with uh, women and their partners about pregnancy loss?
4: Absolutely, and I have the utmost respect for our, our medical community partners. I think that they are on the front lines in many ways in terms of breaking the bad news and providing much needed care to women and their partners and their loved ones so um, so the The recommendations that I have is more or less coming from these interviews and asking. Asking women who have had pregnancy losses, what what would have been helpful, or what would you have wished to have known, um, especially in those interactions with their healthcare providers, and I think there's three main main takeaways that I could share this morning. Um, so, so the first thing is really thinking about potentially educating patients prior to the miscarriages. Um, so many women explained that they hadn't really considered the possibility of of pregnancy loss, and so when it happened, they were absolutely shell-shocked. And so perhaps, although it might not be very enjoyable news to hear, is to have some front-end education. Um, and whether that comes in the OBGYN office, when, when one first finds out that they're pregnant, to learn about risks and, and, and ways and preventative measures, if there are any, that might be one way to go. Um, uh, the second thing is, in terms of breaking the bad news, um, I think there are many wonderful OBGYNs and medical providers who are breaking the news very carefully and with great support um, and thought, although I, um, there, I've heard some horror stories as well, and so I would love for some additional training and kind of some conversations about, for those who are breaking the news effectively, how to continue to do that and to share those best practices um, more widely. And then the final thing is, when one experiences pregnancy loss, um, there's a peak in uncertainty in terms of what next. So we often hear about this book, What to Expect When You're Expecting, um, on the flip side and, and perhaps in a more negative light, you know there's a lot of questions about what to expect when one is no longer expecting um, so you know in terms of what what types of physical pain um, what the what the actual miscarriage might look like, um, what to do when one has had a miscarriage, if they decide to do so naturally or if they end up doing so naturally um, and, and coping resources, so having handouts with local resources and, um, and websites, even social media groups that could be helpful. Lisa, uh, be helpful. Uh, these are
0: all really great suggestions. I'm sorry to cut you off, okay. but we're out of time. I do want to thank you for telling us uh, your story. Lisa Hanasono, again, Associate Professor of Communication Studies at Bowling Green State University. And I do want to let our listeners know that you and your husband did go on to have a, a baby boy in 2017. Thank you. Uh, thank you, and so good to hear that. Uh, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, we're talking about pregnancy loss. And our other guest is Dr. Matt Seidel. He's going to stay with us. We're going to continue our conversation, in on the support uh, that uh, women and their partners uh, can seek out here in Connecticut. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Today we've been talking about miscarriages. And as we heard from our guest, Dr. Matt Seidel, he's an OBGYN, miscarriages are more common than we might expect. Amber Smiley is joining us. uh, She's a program manager for Hope After Loss, which is based in Connecticut. Amber, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Tell us about Hope After Loss and how you got involved.
6: So I, I lost my son in 2013, full term, to a court accident. And at the time I had a really hard time finding support. Uh, a therapist wasn't helpful. Um, so I decided to uh, go to graduate school to become a therapist myself and we moved to Connecticut and hoped to kind of start over, move forward. And I was doing a project on perinatal loss. All of my graduate work has been on perinatal loss and I found this organization.
0: I'm sorry to hear that you had a stillbirth. Uh, when you were talking with others about your situation, um, was it that they felt they didn't have anyone to turn to, and that's why you started the, the organization or worked with it?
6: Um, I just recognized that I didn't have support. My, my own family didn't know what to say. I was in no place at the time to educate them on how to talk to us appropriately. So that's where I, mm-hmm. I researched
0: and and so, tell us what Hope After Loss does in terms of, do you work with training social workers and therapists?
6: So there's three parts. The first part is we have our peer support groups, which are run by people that lost the baby themselves. Um, we have outreach and education, so I go to hospitals, um, I talk to therapists, I talk to MDs, OBGYNs about sort of how to handle the parents at the time of the loss and moving forward everything that we were talking about earlier. Hmm. And the third part is we offer burial and cremation assistance because that's not something that people anticipate having to pay for when they're pregnant. Mm.
0: Uh, For our listeners who are hearing about Hope After Loss, where can they go to learn more about your group?
6: HopeAfterLoss.org has all of my contact information, and it has our most up-to-date support groups where they're located in Connecticut.
0: So we'll make sure we also uh, tweet that out and share that on our web uh, post uh, uh, at where we live. Um, I wanted to bring back Dr. Matt Seidel, who's been with us in OBGYN here in Connecticut. Uh, when this happens, where do you uh, refer your patients, Dr. Seidel?
2: So there are lots of resources, first of all. When we uh, take care of these things in the hospital, there are books and so forth. There's one that we use called Empty Arms, which it is – that's a self – explanatory title. There are lots of community organizations. There are support groups in the area, and uh, we can get you a list of those. But the one that Amber is talking about is um, very much the kind of thing that we will do as well
0: uh amber uh, before we let you go um i'm curious um when you've been listening to the program or, or just with your experience um what's your advice to just uh people in the general public who may um have a loved one that um goes through pregnancy loss what they should um how they should offer support or what they should say
6: um i think as a lost parent myself i'm aware now of the double edged sword there if you don't say anything we don't like that but if you try and say something and it's the wrong thing that's a problem too I would say be persistent, Um, try and be soft with your words, I'm sorry, is perfect. Um, Don't try and fix it. Don't try and make it better. You can't. Um, Just be there.
0: And those are all good uh, words of advice. Uh, Amber Smiley is program manager for Hope After Loss, which is based in Connecticut. We thank you for joining us for just a few minutes. And Dr. Matt Sedell, uh before we end the show, uh, for uh, those listeners, uh, or if they know someone who's had a miscarriage and they still want to uh, try to have another child, you know, how long should they wait before they try again?
2: So, in the early miscarriage, the data tells us that uh, there is no there is no benefit in waiting. So that, as I said, you have to let your heart heal a little bit. But as soon as one experiences their next menstrual period, which will come sometime usually between 4 and 10 weeks afterwards, it's okay to try again. There is no downside to not waiting to trying again immediately.
0: Mm. And uh, earlier you talked about how um, it's natural to be depressed when this happens, but how long should you let those feelings go before you then seek out a counselor?
2: So you really have to understand that these things are going to sneak up at you at certain times. For example, your due date is always going to be a day that was branded into your brain. And when that happens, you're going to have sad feelings. One of the Terrible ironies of this is we always find this out, or usually, in the OBGYN's off, uh, office when you're surrounded by other pregnant women who are having successful uh, pregnancies. So, those are times when you go in for your postpartum, for your post miscarriage checkup and so forth. Those are times it's natural to feel very depressed, but usually this should be starting to take its place in your life. That scar should be beginning to form within the first month or so. And if still at six weeks, this is something that is really uh, controlling your life, that's certainly time to seek help.
0: We want to thank Dr. Matt Seidel for joining us again in OBGYN and Chief Medical Officer of Women's Health Connecticut. He joined us today from the studios of NPR in Midtown Manhattan. Dr. Seidel, thanks so much.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure.
0: Also, Amber Smiley, who's a program manager for Hope After Loss. This is a support group for uh, families uh, dealing with pregnancy loss. Again, we're going to tweet out links to, for listeners to find uh, her organization. Thank you, Amber. Today, Thank you. Today's show produced by L- Lydia Brown. Uh, thanks to Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kayon Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Thanks for listening.